0: Good morning. Today it's an exciting day, also a sad day for me, as we come to the end of our study of the book of Galatians. Over the last several months, as I've spent time studying and processing and praying through this most glorious book, it has been a soul-stirring study for me, and I pray that it has been that for you as well. Well, for the last time, please open up your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, to chapter 6, to the verses that Philip just read for us, verses 11 through 18, these final eight verses in this epistle from the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia. This last week I had the privilege of visiting our Al-Barsha community group. I love when I Visit our community groups. It's a joy to study the scriptures together with other believers. And so this week we did what our community groups do every week: is we open up the scriptures and we study the passage that's going to be preached on the following Friday. So last Monday night we opened up to this very chapter, to these verses in Galatians chapter six, and in the beginning of the study, Nissen Matthew, who was leading us, had us all take some time to share various themes that we have noticed and seen throughout this epistle. We came up with several things. We came up with the idea that Paul repeatedly demonstrates from Scripture that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've learned about circumcision and the law. We've seen the difference between slavery and freedom. How to discern between false teachers and true teachers. The difference between the flesh and the spirit. And we've learned who the true offspring of Abraham are many different ways, Paul's been showing us the difference between one who is a follower of Christ and one who is not. If you're just now joining us here on this last week of our study of Galatians, Paul, the man who wrote this book, who's writing to the church, he was an apostle of God. He used to be a murderer. He was a persecutor of Christians. And one day on the road to Damascus there in the Middle East, He was met by the risen Christ in a most dramatic way and had a dramatic conversion experience. Paul was transformed from being an enemy of God and an enemy of the church into the greatest church planter in the history of the church. And God then commissioned Paul to take several trips, several mission trips to the Gentiles. He went on these missionary journeys to key cities throughout Asia Minor he went and he faithfully preached the gospel. He saw men and women and children saved. And he saw churches started. He went into the chief cities, started a church, and then went off to another city. And one of those churches was started in an area called Galatia. The church was thriving. They were doing well. They were growing in their faith. There was a great new church plant, much like ours here at Redeemer here in Dubai. They had enthusiasm They had excitement. They were discipling one another, sharing their faith. But then Paul moved on to other cities, started other churches, and word got back to him that something had gone wrong. There were false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And sure, they they taught about Jesus. They claimed to believe in the good news of Jesus. They taught about the cross of Christ, about the resurrection... Now, they believed in the crucifixion. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was great. They loved Jesus. But they added something to Jesus. Jesus, yes. But Paul, you've, you've missed the whole point. You haven't really taught the whole gospel. In order to be a real, true Christian, you have to be Circumcised. It meant that to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew culturally. It was Jesus plus work or Jesus plus culture. That equals salvation. Practicing circumcision for salvation was a way of saying that I can be saved through my own effort, my own obedience to the law. Now, Paul's on the road, he's planting churches, and he can't believe what he's hearing. Now, typically, he ends his letters with a number of greetings. Maybe if you've read your Bible for a while, you've, you've noticed that. You've seen him end with some words of thanksgiving. It's a bit mushy. He's kind of harmonizing. He says hi to his friends, greet this person, greet that person, say hello to my sister in the faith. But not here. And it's not hard to figure out why he ends the letter to the Galatians in a different format. It's because it's a life and death situation. They were moving away from the truth. Is this a temptation for us? Are we susceptible to false teaching today, here in Dubai, as a church? Are we capable of trusting in our accomplishments or our abilities, relying on our talent, our self-discipline and heritage in order to gain favor with God? Deep down, all of us want credit. We want grounds for self-atonement. We want to be recognized. Consider a few examples. Maybe at work you've done a great project. You've invested lots of energy and time into this project. You've done a great job. And then your boss comes and gives more credit to another colleague for your project. How do you feel well, you feel you deserve better. Give me the honor that I'm owed. Or how about when your spouse doesn't notice something special you've done for them? You went out of your way, you did something really nice, something really kind for them, and they don't see it. So you're patient. You 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 wait. But the patience only goes so far until passive aggression kicks in and you start making not so subtle hints about the deed. But you get nothing, and pretty soon you start sulking, right? Time for the old fashioned silent treatment. That'll show them. Now we want others to give us credit, to make much of us. We feel we deserve better. Give me the gratitude that you owe me. Or how about with God? Maybe you say, God, I've been faithful. I go to church every week. I sit in that same seat. I'm early. I read my Bible every day. When that offering bag comes around, I, I give to it. I'm faithful in Bible studies. Why haven't you credited back to me a peaceful life, more money, more fame, more prestige, more promotions, my salvation? Why don't I have the things I want, God? I deserve better. Give me what you owe me. We all want credit. We all want to be accomplished and to get people or God to tell us the words, well done for the work we've accomplished. We all want people to boast in our accomplishments. We want others to join in. We want to be able to boast in how great we are. Now today, Paul will end his book with an important word to us. In a sense, it's a summary of everything he said so far in this letter to the Galatians. He wants us to ask ourselves the question, what are you boasting in? Now, to boast is something even stronger than bragging. John Stott once said, it means to glory in, trust in, Rejoice in, revel in, and to live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our boast is our obsession. Who and what are you obsessed with? Who are you giving credit for in your life? Who are you giving credit for, for your salvation? Paul's going to tell us there's only two options. There's only two things we can boast in. That's it. There's not a third or a fourth or a fifth. There are two things. That'll serve as our outline this morning as we close out this book. First, in verses 11 through 13, Paul tells us that one can boast in the flesh. We can boast in the flesh. And second, in verses 14 through the end of the letter we see that one can boast in Christ. That's it. Paul says, those are the only two options. Either you boast in the flesh, you boast in yourself, you give yourself credit for salvation and for life, or or you boast in Christ. That's it. And Paul's going to describe both to us this morning. The first option, you can boast in the flesh. Look at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul was likely writing this letter with an amanuensis. It's a big word just for a secretary who would transcribe the letter. So Paul would speak and this amanuensis would would write out the letter. This was completely normal for writers. We see at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16 that a man named Tersias actually hand-wrote the epistle to the Romans... Well, now all of a sudden, here at the end of the letter, these last eight verses, the Apostle Paul himself picks up a pen and writes these words with his own hand. And he's writing some large words. He's telling the Galatians that what he's writing down is very important. Gets to the end of the letter, and he says, Here's the one thing I want you to know. Here's the one thing I want you to see. Here's the one thing that I want to leave you with. Don't miss this. he was typing on the computer today, he'd be increasing the font size. He'd be changing it to a bright red font, making it bold, putting it in in italics, underlining it. He would put it in all caps. You don't want to miss this. He's saying, Galatians, you need to hear these words. Your eternal destiny is on the line there's no graver predicament to be in than that. And so Paul gives us his final charge. And he starts by showing us that these false teachers are boasting in the flesh. And he gives a couple of reasons why they do this. You could call this the inspection of rejection. Two reasons why these men reject Christ. Look at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. The first reason that these false teachers reject Christ is because of their pride. Did you notice that? They desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Here are men who had not become Christians because they wanted to hold to visible practices which made them look good. It made them look religious. Like the Pharisees in the New Testament, they held on to these practices. They wanted others to look at them and say, "Wow, Wow, those are some religious people. Those are some spiritual people. Look at them. Look at what they do. Circumcision was one of the external marks they took pride in. Following the law, the feasts, the festivals were others. The false teachers were saying, Jesus is not enough. You've got to do these other things. Making a good showing in the flesh makes us feel like we've accomplished something. It gives us something to boast in and for others to compliment us in, including God. Now here's why. So if I were to give you a list of do's and don'ts this morning, then you could go, you could get after it, you could make some progress over the next week, you can control your destiny. All you have to do is get up early, read the Bible, memorize a few verses, only say bad words in your head, quit indulging in excess, get rid of your guilty secrets, and you can be saved. Make a good showing in the flesh and, well, you'll be all right. Ultimately, in that regard, salvation belongs to me. I manage it. I get accountability for it. I achieve my spiritual goals on my spiritual report card. I make the grade and I compare myself to you and boast in how great I am. How I'm more disciplined than you. I'm more faithful than you. I'm more zealous than you. My sinful flesh isn't so sinful or fleshly, is it? It's certainly less sinful than yours. No, the false savior these teachers were worshiping is approval. They wanted fame. They wanted prestige. They wanted honor. They wanted acclaim. They wanted approval. They wanted people to make much of them. These false teachers were even prideful in the number of people they could lead astray. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Not only do they boast in their flesh, but in, the, in others who follow them too. They're taking pride in the numbers of followers who are now taking after them. Now notice it's not that they even keep the law. Did you see that in the verse? They don't. These that proclaim that they keep the law, even they fall short. But they're taking pride, they're boasting in getting others to follow them in their sin. In the book of Philippians, Paul called the keeping of religious ordinances rubbish. He's saying that any acts of righteousness are like filth, like trash, like rubbish in the sight of God. Well, the cross of Christ is a great stumbling block to people who pride themselves in how great they are. So, friend, how about you this morning? Are you boasting in the flesh? Do you try to make a good showing in the flesh to prove that you have no need for Christ and his cross? Maybe you think you're a good person. But here's the problem. The cross is often offensive to conservative-minded people. Because it states that without the cross, quote, good people are in just as much trouble as, quote, bad people. But we don't want to think that. We want to think that we're different. We want to think that because we do things that Christians do, that we somehow earn the favor of God. We want to think that our kids are good kids, that because they went to Sunday school or Redeemer kids and never drank or did drugs and were obedient, that that makes them a Christian. We want to pat ourselves on the back for being amazing and for reserving them and ourselves a place in heaven. No, ultimately the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self salvation. What the cross tells each and every one of us is that we're no good. And I don't know about you, but but I don't like that. Deep down, I want to be made much of. These false teachers rejected the cross because of their pride. And why do they do this? Well, that's the second reason they boast in the flesh. It's to avoid persecution. They boast in the flesh because of their pride. And second, they, they want to avoid persecution. Look again in verse 12 at the end. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're afraid. They fear rejection. They fear that if they come to Jesus, that they will face rejection well, the same is true today for us. But go out and try to preach to the world that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. When you do that, what happens? Well, if you say that he's not the only way, but just one of the ways, you make a lot of friends, don't you? Everyone loves Jesus. Jesus is great. People will say, you and I, we, we believe kind of the same thing. Our religion's We all like Jesus. We're we're basically the same thing. We're just kind of getting there in a different way, but it's all the same. You're good. I'm good. We're all good. Have you heard that before? Now, if you share your faith here, you certainly have. I guarantee you have. But as soon as you say, no, actually, our religions are, are quite a bit different. Actually, Jesus is the only way for salvation. Now, when you say that, Tension fills the air, doesn't it? As soon as you say that you must believe in Jesus alone for salvation, fists go up. Now, maybe you're not at risk for physical abuse, though many of us here are. All of us are at risk of verbal abuse. We risk being socially marginalized, not getting the career promotion we've always dreamed of, having others sneer at us as... Being one of those Christians, family isolation, being disowned, perhaps follows when someone comes to faith. And we fear the raised fist. But we even fear the raised eyebrow, don't we? Friend, have you rejected Christ because of fear of persecution? With a room this size, I think it's safe to assume there are several people here who are fearing family, fearing friends, officials, others. Maybe you want to come to faith. Maybe you understand the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. But maybe you're afraid. Are you a lover of human praise? Do you fear people not making much of you? See, these false teachers, they were boasting in the flesh in order to avoid persecution. And Paul says it's utterly tragic to turn from Christ out of pride or out of fear. So what's the answer? Where does this leave us? Well, Paul gives us a contrast in the following verses. Verse 14, but... Don't boast in the flesh, but boast in Christ. That's the second point in our text. If you're taking notes, we've moved on from boast in the flesh. Now we'll look at the only other alternative each and every one of us has in this life, and it is to boast in Christ. We see that starting in verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I need to help us see how strong this word of contrast really is in our text. And the phrase from the Greek is virtually untranslatable into English. Some translations say, God forbid, may I never. The ESV translates it, may, may I never, or actually in the ESV specifically, far be it from me. It's a phrase that most literally means, may it never be. But that word never is what's emphasized here. That's what's underlined. It's not just enough to say, may I never. No, when he says these words in the beginning of the verse, in effect, what he's saying is, no way. Over my dead body, God forbid, don't think for one moment that I'd do anything else. I absolutely under no circumstances will ever 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 do anything but this may it never ever be far be it for me to boast in anything except 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 in the cross of Christ now Paul were here with us today and we asked him Paul what will your boast be on the day you die what would he say? Paul, why should God let you in heaven? If I had him up here, he was alive today, and I did one of these interviews. Paul, why should God let you in through the gates of heaven? Is it the fact that you pastored the largest church in Antioch? You are a mega church pastor. Pastor. You spearheaded the evangelism of the Gentiles. Surely that would have done it. Right, Paul? It's pretty good. Or how about the fact that you were a great church planter and missionary? You went on at least four long missionary journeys. You went to Rome, to Crete, Lystra, Ephesus, Iconium. You went to Galatia. You started churches and preached Christ where he had never been named before. You were a frontier missionary. That should have done it, right? Or what's the suffering you did for the gospel, Paul? You got whipped several times, shipwrecked. You starved. You were put in the prison and stoned. Surely those sufferings will, will get you into heaven. You deserve grace. You were even on a first name basis with Peter and the apostles. They all knew you. Everyone knew you. You weren't just Christian famous, Paul. You were famous, famous. You taught in prestigious schools like the school of Tyrannus. And you didn't just read the New Testament, Paul. You wrote it. And that's wild. What do you think, Paul? That's got to get you a free pass in heaven, writing the New Testament, writing the Bible? Well, how does Paul reply? Paul, what have you done to get you into heaven? May it never, ever, ever, ever. May it never be that I should boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. That's what Paul says. That's that's how Paul answers That question. But Paul's boast is in Christ alone. And he says that he is crucified to the world and the world to him. When a thing is crucified, it is rejected and scorned. When Paul followed Christ, this is what the world became to him. The world is now dead to him. He's saying, since I met Christ, the world has come to look like a despised, worthless, and cursed thing. Now, Paul doesn't care what the world thinks of him. He doesn't want their applause, like the spouse who feels neglected or the employee yearning for his boss's acknowledgement. Now, we can say with great confidence the words of Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul can say most confidently, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Oh, Paul can most confidently boast in Jesus. Doesn't need others' applause, affirmation. And when the world looks at him, it doesn't see something attractive either. Brothers and sisters, this... These verses aren't some kind of apostolic frenzy of spirituality. This is true of every Christian. Friends, we are dead as far as the world is concerned. Christians look strange. What we have done in placing our faith in Christ is something that is scorned. The world thinks that a life devoted to a crucified Christ is a a throwaway life. It's not worth anything. Here's what all this means. If Paul doesn't boast... None of us boasts. If Paul doesn't get into heaven on his own, none of us gets into heaven on our own. We're all on the same level. Paul. Prostitutes, murderers, do-gooders, thieves, lawyers, straight-A students, doctors, nannies, Indians, Kenyans, Australians, British, Filipinos, Brazilians, Iranians. The rich, the poor, old, young, young. High-caste, low-caste, woman, man, child, single, married, barren, depressed, successful, famous, or unknown. Paul says none of this matters. Why? Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul says none of it matters. Your heritage, your background, your good works, none of it matters. You can take your certificates, you can take your pedigree, take your accomplishments, you can take all your good deeds, put them in a box and put them in the rubbish bin because none of it matters except being found in Christ Jesus. Nothing matters except a new creation. If you have a pen, circle that phrase in your Bible or underline it, highlight it, asterisk it, If you don't write in your Bible, just ignore everything I just said. Just tattoo it somewhere on your body. If you don't like tattoos or you think they're bad or evil, just memorize this. Know this idea that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. When it comes to right standing before God, neither legalism or license matters. The new creation is all about change that starts from the inside out. The new creation involves the whole process of conversion, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit leading to repentance and faith. All this is possible because of Christ's death on the cross. I mean, if you think about it, it's quite strange for Paul to say, boast in the cross of Christ. It's like saying, boast in the electric chair. Boast in the gas chamber. Boast in lethal injection. That's that's very strange. Boast in death? That's weird. And crucifixion, crucifixion specifically was the most horrendous death in the ancient world. It was reserved only for the most horrible criminals. Yet Paul doesn't boast in Jesus walking on water. Doesn't boast in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Doesn't boast in the quality of Jesus' teaching or his healing of diseases. He boasts in the cross, in Christ's gruesome death. In J.I. Packer's great book, Knowing God, who incidentally, uh, Philip's been reading through this book in the beginning of our weekly Bible study on Wednesday nights. So some of you who've been tracking with the book of Ephesians on Wednesdays with Philip, maybe you've actually read this chapter already. It's a chapter called The Heart of the Gospel. It's about the idea of propitiation. It's a word used in Romans that means to satisfy God's wrath. And Paul says God set forth Jesus as a propitiation, as a way to deal with that wrath. Throughout the years, many have been upset over this. They say, do you really believe God killed Jesus? There's a place in the great story of the Iliad in Homer's Iliad, where Agamem- Agamemnon is trying to set sail for Troy. He's trying to storm the city to take over the city, and the weather's all bad. There's storms, the waves are quite rough. And so Agamemnon, in order to get safe passage to Troy, he sacrifices and kills his daughter. He offers his daughter up on the altar in order to get there safely. And people say, well, is that what God is doing? You want to have a God like that? A bloodthirsty, pagan God like that? And what J.I. Packer says is, no, 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 no. The God of the Bible is not like a wimpy, modern God who just winks at injustice. Well, the God of the Bible isn't so angry that you have to put up your own child up on the altar to sacrifice him and give him up. Now, God does say the price must be paid, the penalty must be paid. But instead, it's God himself who puts his son up. The eternal son of God. Willingly set his face toward Jerusalem. To endure the cross. Nobody twisted his arm to do so. he did it for us. That's why you have Acts chapter 20. Where Paul says. Shepherd the flock of God. That God purchased with his own blood. God. God. Shed his blood. This is why, friends, we boast in the cross. It's because on the cross, God has provided for us a way to be saved. He has satisfied God's holy wrath that you and I deserved for sinning against an infinitely holy and perfect and wise and glorious God. And the punishment must fit the crime. If God didn't condemn us to an eternal suffering, then he would cease to be God, he would cease to be perfectly holy. And so we were condemned, dead, judged, with no hope in the world. And yet God in his infinite kindness took the most gruesome death symbol in the ancient world, the cross. And he used it as a means of salvation for many by taking the penalty and the judgment himself. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the earth. He lived perfectly. He died as a substitute for us. And then he rose from the dead on the third day, showing his superiority over everything, including death. Oh, fellow Christian, the cross means that we have been redeemed and that Christ has paid the whole price of our salvation. The cross means that we have forgiveness of sins, that Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take every last sin. The cross means that we are justified. We are declared righteous and acceptable in God's sight. The cross means his wrath has been turned away and we are innocent in his eyes. The cross means we are no longer his enemies but have been adopted into his family as his children. As heirs of a great inheritance. And as citizens of heaven. Fellow Christian, the reason God accepts you is because of the cross of Christ. Not because of anything you've done. This encourages us when we do fail because we know that our righteous standing with God holds firm regardless of our performance, that our salvation is based on the work of Jesus and not our work. Back during the, the time of the Reformation, the great Martin Luther often would proclaim as he went from church to church, and he would say, I am saved. Everywhere he went, he would say, I'm saved. And the church would say, how arrogant how can you say that? You're not dead yet. You don't know if you're going to make it. You don't know that when you die that you'll actually go to heaven and be saved. Nobody knows if, you've, if they've done enough good works to be accepted in the sight of God. No one can have confidence before God. But see, Luther did know. Luther did have confidence because he boasted in the work of Christ. That through Jesus we have confidence before a holy God. As a Christian who trusts God fully you don't say, well, I hope I'll get to heaven. That's not humility. That's heresy. It's heresy and it's a charge against God. Oh, friend, whose righteousness do you stand in? If you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, then don't ever doubt the purity and sufficiency of his righteousness. Now, Back at university, I was a teenager just starting my studies when my friend John first shared the good news of the gospel with me. We were playing billiards one day in the student center and he asked me the question. He said, if you were to die tonight on the way back to the dormitory, if you were to get smashed by a car in an accident, I remember thinking, wow, this guy's quite morbid. I don't want to get smashed on the way to my dormitory. But he said, if you were to get smashed, if you were to get in an accident, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God, Why should God let you into heaven? Similar to the question we asked of the Apostle Paul earlier. And I said, well, John, I, I don't know. Maybe, I hope so. And he asked me, well, what if God then asked, for what reason should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And I said, well, I've been a pretty good person. I've done okay at the Ten Commandments. I haven't killed anyone. I think that's pretty good, I suppose. I don't even know. I don't even own a gun. I'm kind. I'm peaceful. But in the end, I told John, Hey, John, I I don't really know. Maybe. And then he went on to say that I could know. I could know for sure tonight. And I reacted in anger. I told him what a pompous and arrogant man he was. That he could presume what God would do. I told him that I'd be playing God if I did that. But friends, the reality is my friend John wasn't arrogant. His assurance came through boasting in the cross. He understood the gospel. He understood that salvation wasn't dependent on him. He understood that salvation was dependent on Christ alone and what Christ had already done. Now, brothers and sisters, God has shown us in his word that the sacrifice he accepts for our sins is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we can know how God would judge because God tells us He has already judged our sins on the cross. Friend, cling to the cross, have confidence in Christ. It's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that saves, but a new creation. For many people, the biggest hurdle to their salvation isn't getting them saved, it's first getting them lost. It's showing people who think they're saved that they're not actually saved. It's showing people who think they're Christians and showing them that they're actually trusting in something other than Jesus. Well, friend, The question I ask again as we close the book of Galatians is, friends, are you born again? Are you a new creation? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save you? If not, I urge you to be reconciled to God through the only means he's provided, the cross of Christ. Repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone is the only way to be saved, the only way to experience true peace and mercy and to be part of the people of God. Now, for all who believe in Jesus and are born again, this is what happens to you. Look at verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, meaning salvation by grace alone, Paul says peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I think the rule is this mindset he's just described, verses 14 and 15, in contrast to the mindset of the false teachers in verses 12 and 13. If you walk by this rule, if you're saved by, by grace, you become part of the Israel of God. The false teachers were saying you need to be circumcised and become a Jew culturally And Paul's saying that the true Israel of God are those who've come to saving faith. It's not your cultural background that makes you the true people of God. The Israel of God is simply another way of referring to all who follow this rule. Those of the true church. And yet all too often we resort to boasting in the flesh. How are you saved? Well, let's just work our way down the Christian salvation checklist and see how are you doing with each of the Ten Commandments? Do you have Christian stuff at home? Do you have a big study Bible on your coffee table turned to Psalm 23? How about your music? Does your iPod have Christian playlists on it? Do you have any pictures from a trip to Israel? Do you have a fish symbol on your car? Do you come to church every week? Do you have Christian parents? Were you raised in a Christian home? Did you say prayers at bedtime and have dinner devotionals? Are you involved in lots of ministry at the church? Are you always signing up for different needs? How do you tell if someone's a Christian? Paul says it's not the mark of circumcision or anything else you've done or participated in, but by another mark. Look at verse 17. Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What does he mean when he says he bears on his body the marks of Jesus? Does it mean that he has the word Jesus tattooed on his back? I don't actually know if Paul liked tattoos or not. That's not what it means. No, it means that the false teachers were saying, You need this mark of circumcision to be saved. And Paul says, I have a different mark that shows my faith. And these marks were the physical deformities from the suffering that he faced as a result in boasting in the cross. It was the trials that he faced as a consequence of his belief. Now Paul's making an interesting comparison between these two marks. Maybe in your community groups you notice that, that contrast that he's giving us here. He talks about circumcision five times in our passage. Verse 12, twice in verse 13, and verse 15, circumcision... Uncircumcision. But here's the thing Galatians is not really about circumcision at all. For as many times as he mentions it, you might think that it is, but it's not. The book about Galatians is all about what the act of circumcision represents. He's not writing them to tell them to stop getting circumcised. Now, don't miss this. He's not telling them to stop the feasts, he's not telling them to stop the festivals to stop their Jewish culture. He's not telling them to stop any of that. What he's telling them is that to be circumcised or to not be circumcised doesn't matter. That to do these festivals or to not do these festivals doesn't matter, that it's all about the new creation. So Paul says, what does that look like in your life? No, not the mark of circumcision, but some other marks that I've acquired over time. Now, these marks aren't pointing to something that you try to earn salvation for. It was a mark that showed that Paul believed in Jesus. It was the effect of only boasting in Jesus. He believed in Jesus, he boasted in the cross, and he was persecuted for it. The very thing the false teachers were trying to avoid, persecution, is a mark of a Christian. Friend, is your life marked by this type of boasting Are you a new creation who publicly boasts in the cross? Do you encourage other believers to boast in the cross, or do you want them to make a good showing in the flesh in order for you to accept them as a brother or sister? And Christian, have you faced persecution for your faith? Now, like I said, I'm not necessarily talking about imprisonment or physical beatings. But are you mocked for your faith? Have you ever been ridiculed for boasting in the cross? Do those in your life even know that you're a follower of Jesus? Or instead, are you tempted to boast in your flesh? your ministry success, your relatively moral life, your great career, your great talent? Well, how do we personally boast in the cross? Well, friend, if you're a Christian, you remember and you praise God that it is in Him alone and through Him alone that you're saved. You deny yourself. You lift others up. You give credit for your good works to God. And you boldly tell others about Jesus even if there are consequences. You boast in the cross and share your faith with everyone. Even if that means bearing the same marks that Paul bore for his boldness. It means that if your children become Christians you boast not in your great parenting but you praise God for his saving work. If someone had worked gets the credit you think you deserve for a project, you boast in Christ, you praise Him, and you encourage that colleague who got the credit. If you have a great marriage or great talents, if you have a great ministry, you boast in Christ and thank Him. Friends, only when you boast in the cross of Christ will you experience the truth of the closing verse in this grand epistle. As we come to a close, look at verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now, grace is the most appropriate word to finish this book on. Friend, have you experienced the grace of God? There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who boast in the flesh. and Those who boast in the cross. Which one are you? Martin Lloyd-Jones, years ago, when he wanted to figure out where a person's heart was, used to ask people straight up, are you a Christian? Whether he met them on the street, at work, or in the church setting, he would go up and just say, friend, are you a Christian? And if someone said, I'm trying... And he knew that person had no idea what a Christian was and that that person wasn't a believer. You can't be a Christian through trying. Friends, you can only be a Christian through dying. You can only be a Christian through Jesus dying for you and then you dying to self-salvation and self-righteousness. Friend, boast in the cross. Turn from your sin, believe in Jesus and be saved. Only when you boast in the cross will you experience true freedom. Well, let's go to this great God now in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this epistle to the Galatians. Thank you, Father, that you've hammered home into the deep crevices of our hearts, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, we pray that as a church, as Redeemer Church of Dubai, that we would heed these words in the book of Galatians. Father, that these last several months would not have been in vain, but that we would take it to heart. That, Father, as a church, that we would boast only in the death and resurrection of our Lord that we boast in him whose precious blood was spilled for us, our great redeeming sacrifice. Father, you slayed this lamb to redeem us. And would we boast in this now and forevermore? Would we not trust in ourselves, our actions, our works, our ministry, our heritage, our ethnicity, or anything else? But Father, would we, Redeemer Church of Dubai, boast in the cross of Christ and nothing else? Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now as we respond by boasting in the cross of Christ alone, please stand as we sing.